friends and fellow seekers, welcome to the secret society of the instructional designer. On this episode, we dive into a discussion about preparing for and starting a new job in instructional design. Then we, okay, well, honestly, that's, that's like most of the episode. It, it took me a very long time to cut it down to even just be 45 minutes. So most of it's going to be the discussion. I didn't even have time to, to put in the interview. And that's, you know, that's too bad. It was a good interview. Uh, we'll, we'll release it next month. You'll, you'll all enjoy it. Uh, but you know, there was just a lot of stuff to cover. So we still have the question hat, um, cause that's fun, but it's mostly, you know, get starting and getting a job in instructional design. Anyway, I'm kind of rambling now, so let's just go into the episode. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Secret Society of the Instructional Designers. I'm joined by my co-host today, who will introduce ourselves, themselves, and we will be going over today, our topic of the day, because we always rigorously stick to an assigned topic, is... What do you do when you are starting a new instructional designer job? What are you, what things should you look out for? What are, what do you tend to look for when you're applying? And what are some advice of best practices? I'm Rachel Stern Lockerman, and I'm going to pass it on to my co-host, Nick. Hey, everybody. Uh, my name is Nick Noel. Uh, I am the Assistant Director of Educational Technology uh, within MSU IT, and I am going to pass uh, this on to Clea. Hello, hello. I'm Clea Mahoney. I'm a people and culture manager in learning and development at an accounting and advisory firm called BDO. Um, it's about my second month in. So I think something that is going to come out of this episode is us. We've all recently started new jobs or are about to do that. Um, but before I get into that, last but not least, we have Steve. Oh, definitely least. But I'm Steve Widener, and I am the manager of instructional technology, uh, manager of instructional design and technology at Rocky Vista University. And I am about six months into my role. So you know, we're we're all dealing with experience with this experience. And if you've been listening to all these podcasts and you think, "Wow, they all have an episode about jobs and getting jobs," well, yes, this is our obligatory episode on the subject. <laughs> and uh, the but reason... ours will be the best. <laughs> the reason, obviously, the reason that I did not announce my job is that I am actually going to be starting a new job uh, in about two weeks from we are recording and probably six months ago from the time it's actually released. Um, <laughs> but I will be starting a job as an instructional designer at um, CUNY Online, which is focused on building quality online courses for the Sydney University of New York. And I'm very excited to start. And uh, let's jump into our podcasts. So we've, we've got a good gamut. I just did my one-year annual review for my job. Uh, Steve's got about six months. Clea's got about two months. And Rachel's got minus two weeks. So um, pretty exciting. Different, different levels about where we, where we are with everything. Do we want to move into our next kind of subtopic here? Yeah. Uh, so what you, now we're going to ask the room, what is your specific experience in terms of starting a new job what's changed what's new what's uh what's what has your experience been in and i'm gonna toss it to nick because he's at the top of my screen <laughs> um yeah and and everybody feel free to to interject as we as we go along we don't need to necessarily have a panel discussion or anything but um so i've i've 
done a lot of job transitions in the past five and a half, six years. So I moved into instructional design about six years ago. Then during the, then about two and a half years ago, three years ago, um, they made me a team lead within our instructional design group. And then during the pandemic, um, shortly, well, probably about a year in, um, they reformed a team. We had a manager, then she left and I became the interim manager for about a year or so. It's all kind of a blur. I don't exactly remember timelines. So if, as if you go through and add this up and it seems like it's like 10 years instead of six and a half, it just all kind of melded together. Uh, like I said, about a year ago, I, I moved into uh, assistant director position. I, I don't know. I don't think I uh, was ever prepared for any of those transitions, really. Like starting, uh, starting as an ID, um, I had a lot of background at our university. Uh, so I'd worked there for about four years in various capacities. And I had a background in media production and also like classroom technology. And I was just starting a master's program in educational technology. And I had applied for the job as a way to practice getting an instructional design job. And then they gave me the job and I was like, oh crap, <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, this is going to be difficult. Um, because like I said, I was, I had maybe taken one and a half, maybe two classes at that point in my master's program. Um, so I felt pretty out of my depth and it was, it was a bit of a struggle moving into doing my mainly like hands-on technical and media production work into more like online learning and technology consulting. Yeah. So I kind of want to jump in here because I also feel that I was practicing or preparing to become an instructional designer. Um, two jobs ago, I had my first role in corporate instructional design and I was the first and only instructional designer. I didn't actually think I would get that job. And it was kind of a leap for me to go from working in higher education at NYU as an instructional technologist, although I feel like I knew instructional design and I was trying to apply what I could in the core focus of my job, which was basically technical training for faculty and, of course, <laughs> getting folks comfortable with teaching online during the pandemic. Um, so I was very much in that practice mode as well, Nick, and somehow got hired. I loved many aspects of that job, but it was also very challenging. And so more recently, my second job in corporate ID is my title is not instructional designer at all. <laughs> I actually work alongside instructional designers and e-learning developers. So it's very much appreciated. It's it's what I felt I needed to not be the only one doing all the things. Um, and at the same time, it's also a challenge, right? I have to remember that I don't have to do all those things. We have dedicated team members to work with. And so figuring out the roles and responsibilities, where the boundaries of one role ends and the next one begins. Um, that's something that I'm still really enjoying figuring out in my second month here. But I like that I get to focus on, to me, my current favorite aspects of instructional design, coming in at the beginning to make sure that the learning solution we're developing can actually solve a problem. <laughs> um, so I have a lot of favorite books that I might link in the show notes there. And then also trying to come in at the end to see, okay, we've launched this course or we've launched this 
virtual online workshop with 30 people, what kind of impact and difference is it making on the job? So getting to focus on the beginning and the end rather than doing all the things is something that I feel very grateful for. Steve, I I wanted to ask you how your transition has been and also get your perspective, because if my memory is correct, you actually left the field for a little while and then came back. Is that right? Or am I missing? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, now, now, when I left the field, uh, I was in instructional design from 2001 through 2009. Uh, and then things happened. Um, and I transitioned over into culinary for six years, which, um, you know, given some of the jobs I applied for after that, um, I'm kind of surprised the culinary plus instructional design didn't help. Uh, com considering that I was looking at a bunch of jobs for uh, hospitality companies that were looking for instructional designers. I'm kind of like, okay, this I, I don't know how this isn't working. But uh, yeah, this is my third position in the six-year period that we're talking about. Uh, my first one was a two-year contract gig. Then I worked four years at Northeast College of Health Sciences. And now I've been at my new position for six months both of these last two positions put technology first. They put instructional technology first and instructional design has kind of come to it. When I was at Northeast, it was, I was hired as a technologist because that's what they direly needed. Mm -hmm. And then when, when I went to them and said, you know, I can do instructional design too. They went, and at my current position, it's something where this is the first time they've had an instructional designer and the technology has typically been handled by central IT. So now we have someone who actually knows instructional technology and how people teach with it. And maybe this isn't the same person that's already handling all of the every other IT function around campus and has a little more brain power to dedicate to how the LMS works or doesn't. <laughs> uh, and every, you know, and what it would need to be able to work with other things. It's uh, it's funny that you say that, Steve, because uh, that's pretty much exactly my experience at the current job that I am leaving. Uh, yeah, you need somebody to figure out what you need to take high flex classrooms. Sure, go at it. You need to uh, make a program because you're uh, you need to make a voting system work. Have fun with some Java and some you know uh, some programming. Uh, what does quality instructional design look like? You you do that too. So like very much a. Uh, jack of all trades, shop of one kind of thing. Course evaluations, data analytics, you know, like just, just you do all of those things. So like uh, that has been a very common experience I find when I've been talking to other people in the field that like expectation that you just are, you're gonna, you're the person who does everything. Um, yeah. And uh, that is, that is very common. Have you guys found it to be similar? So I would say that experience is similar. I think that's one thing to keep in mind if somebody's looking to transition or move into another job is that in this field, it's still very ill-defined what these roles mean. So like Steve's talking a little bit about the difference between instructional technologist, instructional designer. That is a theoretical sometimes compared differential difference where that doesn't actually manifest sometimes. So a lot of times like you'll be an instructional designer and then you're also doing like in-depth training on on technologies and then you're talking about course design and then the intersectionality between those things or the intersections between those things. And then you also may be doing some like 
weird technical thing where you're just moving people over into courses or or something or or getting a, a course shell set up for somebody and and it it can become difficult because those things are interrelated but they're also separate fields um and they're separate disciplines um but often the <laughs> office that handles those things is usually understaffed regardless of how many people it is up until recently, the idea of doing less with less is hasn't really come up in jobs like, um, you know, my my boss kind of uh, my current supervisor kind of interjected that idea that like, hey, we have this number of people, we can do this amount of stuff. We can't do more than this amount of stuff unless you give us more people or more resources like and paying people more doesn't give them more time like they still only have a certain amount of time um so it that part isn't actually helpful like we need a whole other person it really resonates with my higher education experience in general <laughs> trying to do instructional technology and facilitation and supervision of student employees and LMS transitions and a little bit of instructional design is the cherry on top um <laughs> But I also feel like what you shared about, you know, wearing many hats and doing multiple roles, it also applies to corporate. There was another job that I was interviewing for um, at the time that I was interviewing where I currently work now, the new gig, and they're still looking for an instructional designer. They're actually looking for something that is a different job title, but... <laughs> The job has been reposted with different titles with the same description. So that kind of raised some red flags for me while I was interviewing and continues to raise red flags that they're not quite sure what they're looking for. Uh, but more importantly and more upsetting to me is they think that one person is going to fill this gigantic build a whole customer education curriculum need. Um, so definitely some red flags. I think certain people would love that job, love that opportunity. But for me, in terms of my transition from my last role into this one, I really try to focus on what I wanted to be different. And to not be the one doing everything was really high in my priority list. So I'm really lucky now that our director has a similar approach that that your boss takes, Nick, in terms of, okay, we have this many people, we have this many projects on our plate, here's what we can realistically commit to. And I'm still getting used to, you know, deadlines being several months out rather than, oh, could you do it by Wednesday? <laughs> no problem. <laughs> don't need subject matter experts, don't need to interview any learners, like just write some content and call it good. So yeah, I'm trying to find that new balance here. <laughs> One of the uh, places I interviewed had a very similar, like when I asked about sub subject matter expert collaboration, they were like, oh, well, you'll do that. And I was like, this is not my subject. And they're like, yeah, just just you'll look it up. You'll make it. And I'm like, that's <laughs> OK. Um, and that kind of makes me like think about if you are transitioning from, let's say, an individual con contributor role to a management role, um, how, what are the tips or strategies to, I mean, in general, but also specifically, how do you set boundaries and kind of defend your staff so that they don't burn out or accept, take on too much? And I feel like that really ties to the title of our podcast, you know, secret, 
there are secrets that no one tells you about instructional designs. And one of the ones, one of the secrets that we'll tell you now is you should not be the instructional designer and the subject matter expert and the learner. Like this role specifically is supposed to help, you know, empathize with the learner and realize that. So I'm borrowing this from another podcast that I listened to, Learning Geeks. <laughs> um, but they describe, you know, a subject matter expert, they have bucketfuls of knowledge and your learner might just have enough for a thimble. Like unless we instructional designers do the job of filtering out what is not super essential to starting to learn the thing, to working towards that subject matter expertise, that thimble is just going to overflow. Um, so I think that's a secret kind of skill to emphasize is filtering out the hordes <laughs> and reams of information that our subject matter experts give us. Yes, we thank them for it, but then we also have to be that filter and that sieve uh, between them and the learner. Uh, kind of like in that, I, I think this is tangentially related, but I apologize if I'm radically changing the, the topic, but, but I think like also when you're looking for jobs, that means like, be open to the idea that the job you're looking for is not going to be called what you think it's going to be called. So like, even if you don't think you're that interested in, 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 in instructional technology, look for instructional technologist jobs because they may have just called it that because they're in the IT department, not because they actually expect you to do in-depth technology training or, um, you know, also like anything learning and development, anything like e-learning uh, developer or like these kinds of like related jobs um, are not defined. Like they have so much crossover and one place that calls somebody an e-learning developer may have called them an instructional designer, may have called them even a learning designer somewhere else. And it it just really depends. So like open up that search a little bit and read about the job and read about the company and see if it's something that would fit with what you're wanting to do, especially when you're getting into it and first starting. And uh, that's, you know, if you're, when you're applying, definitely make sure that you tailor your cover letter. I know like you've heard that to constantly, <laughs> but like, because a company might be like, I'm hiring an instructional designer. I want somebody who knows mapping, who knows needs analysis, et cetera. And you, even though your title is e-learning developer, instructional technologist, you you can do that in your sleep. They might just see your job title and not really apply that because the field is so varied. So make sure that you uh, really sell yourself in that cover letter of like, yes, I know my title is instructional technologist. But like, here are the things that I do on a day-to-day -day basis. And I am amazing. Always, uh, a friend of mine uh, kind of said this, like, always have the confidence of like a mediocre person. Just like, because, you know, the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> Dunning dip, like the person who knows nothing thinks they know everything. And the person who knows a lot doesn't think they know enough. And the person who's like actually an expert thinks that they know a lot. So you probably know a lot. And you're like, oh, I don't think I know everything. So just like have the confidence of that person who doesn't really know what they're talking about. So uh, do we want to move on to the next question of when you were applying for jobs, since all of us are have started or are starting new jobs, what kind of jobs were you looking for? And, you know, what did you end up actually taking? 
Yes. So I will jump at this one because um, when I was laid off, I was preparing myself to be unemployed for a while. Uh, Actually, before we hit recording, Nick asked me, like, did you plan on just kind of relaxing for a while? And I'm like, yeah, that would have been really nice. Um, However, I will say that in my new job, I have much better work-life balance. It's probably 75% better. And I didn't realize (laughs) how bad it was until I got out of that situation. So I tried to be really selective in terms of what I wanted next. Um, Tying this back to something that Nick just said a few minutes ago, you know, I wouldn't have looked for something like people and culture manager, learning and development. It doesn't even seem like a real job title, yet it's (laughs) the title that I have. And You know, I'm a manager more at the project level rather than overseeing our instructional designers and e-learning developers. Mm -hmm. We have a more collaborative relationship, which is great. And, you know, it was important for me to look past just the job title. For a while, I was so tied to it, like, oh, well, I finally had my first corporate instructional designer job. I want another instructional designer title. Yet when I read the job description for the job that I have now, I realized that it is still instructional designer. It just focuses on slightly different Mm -hmm. things because the context and the culture of this new place is going to be different. So my advice and what I was looking for, I I really tried to get specific. I really wanted to not be the one person who did everything. Um, And there were a few jobs that I passed on because I tried to picture myself doing them. And I was already bored in that daydreaming. And I'm like, if this job title doesn't actually get me excited to, you know, wake up and spend 40 hours a week here, then I probably shouldn't apply, probably give that to someone else. So I was lucky to be able to be picky. I know we can't always be. Um, If I was a little bit more desperate for a job, I probably would have jumped on something sooner, Mm -hmm. hit that LinkedIn easy apply. But for me, I really wanted to, to try to make it a good fit and to focus on narrowing in in instructional design what do i actually like to do there versus generally yeah sure i can do any instructional design i think we all have kind of realized that it's so different you know <laughs> even if you have that instructional designer role and i'm curious what what your experience has been like so for me i was looking for um i really wanted where i'd get to focus on making online learning amazing, just like really building quality online programs with people who are also excited to build quality online programs. Um, I I loved the variety of my current role, but I also really wanted a chance to like focus and drill down on the instructional design aspects and just uh, really the the end goal was was the priority for me of making that happen, making quality online programs happen. So that's really where I focused. I didn't actually apply to so many jobs. I wasn't just like blanketing uh, my resume. And I think also that's kind of like Clea said, I was privileged enough that I did not need a new job for financial reasons. I could I I was able to be picky. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really uh, wanted to focus on that. And that's why I accepted my current job because I'm going to get to do what I really love doing at the university that I really believe in. But I get to focus on the very exciting parts of building amazing online programs. When I was looking, and I was looking probably for about a year uh, prior to applying for my current job, um, 
and I wasn't seriously looking like I was, I was, cause I was, I was mostly happy in my, my position. It just been so, I, I was looking for more like stability and assurance, I think. And I was feeling really uncomfortable in the position I was working on in the area I was working on at the time, specifically at the time. And that wasn't due to anything besides the chaos that comes when there is a, uh, one global pandemic. I don't know if you guys heard about it, um, but then a, a, a crisis like that that kind of exacerbates some of the issues that um, came up in in our organizational structure and the amount of time it takes to write those those issues. So I was looking for stuff. I looked at some like kind of like training jobs. I think there was some company that does medical records, I want to say for camps and elementary schools, and they have a software that handles that. So they wanted like a learning manager for them or a training team manager. I got to like a second interview with them. I looked at a couple places at U of M. Um, I, I got to a place at, at one of them where they were probably leaning towards hiring me because they started like they had a like specific meeting with me where they're like, well, this is the salary and this is, you know, what it is. Are you still interested? And I was like, no. And, you know, I, I think it would have been a, a perfectly good job. It would have been fun. It would have been interesting to work at a different university, but ultimately I'm glad I didn't end up taking it. So yeah, I, I think what I learned is like, it's a bad idea. And, and maybe this is something that everybody should know is like, it's a bad idea to make decisions out of fear um, because you maybe make bad ones. So I'm glad that none of the stuff I applied for ended up working out despite it being very demoralizing for a time. <laughs> so as far as what I was looking for, I'm, I'm the weirdo of this bunch. Uh, I mean, yeah, we know we're, I would say weirdos, I'm the weirdo, but, but we can battle it out next time. <laughs> I take offense at the implication well, that I am not a weirdo offense, Steve. <laughs> And Nick's like, that's fine. You are all weirdos. I'm the normal. <laughs> uh, let's let's not have a weird off, okay? I don't like will. Okay. <laughs> so I will I will say the differences between my job search and everyone else's was that I was going mm -hmm. for geography. I was expressly looking for a job with the goal of moving to where I am from where I was physically, not professionally. I mean, professionally was a plus to it, but the biggest deal was I wanted to move out of New York to Colorado. And that meant applying to a bunch of schools in the area. And that also meant to applying to companies in the area like Snooze, which, you know, I'm kind of surprised I didn't get a call back from the mothership. I'm surprised but, hey, too. Okay. They're delicious, but I'll take you to better brunch places. Steve and I have had brunch, fun fact. Um, so we're both in Colorado. That's an exciting update. <laughs> the thing I was not expecting to find that I am now in the middle of is accreditation. And this is something that you may, or if, if you're working in higher ed, this may or may not be an exciting part of what you do because Rachel mentioned hybrid courses. And at my present, at, at RVU, our courses are hybrid in an interesting way because we have campuses both in Colorado and in Utah and they co-teach these courses. So two days a week, 
they're lecturing in Colorado and remote in Utah. Two days a week, they're lecturing in Utah and remote in Colorado. And everyone's doing all their lab work locally. So it's it's not like, you know, students are kind of, you know, distance learning dissection or things like that. But what's in, why I bring up accreditation with this is this suddenly made us have to file for particular accreditation permissions. For those of you who are in corporate, you probably have no idea of this going on. But one of the things that happened back in 2019 was uh, the Department of Education basically put in a formal definition of what regular substantive interaction means in online courses. And basically, this is the term that defines whether your school is teaching online courses or teaching correspondence courses. And the difference between these is a whole lot of financial aid. Because if you have students who are in your programs, they are going to have very different, they can get very different levels of financial aid depending on whether they're in an online or a correspondence program. So that led to all kinds of panic at my institution, which led to, hey, you're doing instructional design. We're doing these courses. Technically, these are kind of online. They fall under this. Hey, let's start writing reports because we really, really, really need to get accredited. And oh, yeah, we need this by Thursday. I, I miss sometimes a faster pace and deadline, but also I, I don't miss the crushing stress and knowing that, you know, you might affect someone financially, not just in terms of learning experience, but yeah. And, and I really feel for you there, Steve. Um, it speaks again to the secret skills that an instructional designer needs adapting constantly to change and evolving learning environments and constraints. <laughs> I, think, I think that can be our thesis of the secret society. Like what is the secret? You need to just constantly be able to adapt and change. Uh, <laughs> I For the interview for the job I currently had, uh, if anybody is applying to that job, if they have new postings, this is a spoiler. They actually quizzed me on the new online regulations. They were like, name the regulations for the new one. I was like, I didn't memorize this, but luckily I love Alexandra Pickett and the Oscar uh, format. Yes, we love Oscar. Um, and I know that they basically the second the regulations came out, they updated Oscar, which is the open source uh, quality score review rubric. I might be missing that for SUNY um, for those new regulations, basically instantly, because Alexander Pickett's amazing. Like because of that, I was like, oh, yeah, I don't know them offhand, but here are the metrics of quality design that I always follow and they're like oh yeah that basically covered all of them i did miss one i did miss time on task which is the amount of time you have to say oh this is going to take about an hour but they were like oh yeah that's great and i got the job so and i start in two weeks um so very excited about that uh so then so i guess that kind of brings us to, into our last wrap-up thought before we move on to our question from the question hat um if you are starting a new job looking for a new job etc what is one piece of advice that you would give to a brand new person who is starting a new ID job or related as kind of Nick said, they're not all, they're not all going to be called instructional designer. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll start. And I think I have two, even though you only asked for one. Um, but the first thing is always apply regard, like just, just apply. Even if you think like, Oh, I only know half of the stuff or, I don't know if I have enough experience, just apply. Like you have no idea how many people 
have applied, you don't know what their experience is. And then I would also say as much as you can get a sense of the culture for the place. So if you get an interview, look at what are, what are the other people in that group doing? See how many there are and ask what people's reactions to their work is. And then I'm trying to think how to, how to phrase this, like, see if you'd be consulting with faculty or working for faculty, um, like what the mentality is. So, and neither one is necessarily good or bad, but you want to get a sense of like, am I working with them? Am I giving them advice? Am I rebuilding this together? Is this collaborative or do they have a certain set of tasks and I have a certain set of tasks and I have to get my thing done and then they in, in, interact with it. Um, Cause there might be mixes of that. There may be very hard lines. Um, some have very rigid course development structures that they have to follow or plans. Others are very amorphous. Um, and this is more of a question of not to gauge that one is better than the other, but to gauge how do you like to work and see if that place works that way. So that's a little bit you have to know yourself. Yeah, I really like that one. Um, and aside from what Nick said, <laughs> my top tip is practice. So many folks who are in this recording right now, you've practiced interviews with me. You've helped me practice my job application materials. And those practices have been painful, but I <laughs> try to picture myself like an actor, right? You do a rehearsal. Um, the rehearsal is always going to be worse than the real deal. And also some of those practice opportunities have helped me to realize, oh, I actually don't really want this job that I'm practicing an interview with you for, so I can back away from that and try something else. So definitely practice, you know, throw your name out there, know that some practice sessions will be bad, but they're all going to help you get to a better place and ultimately a better job and good luck. I would say when you decide that you're looking at a particular institution, if you want to invest yourself in that job, which, you know, basically happens when they give you the first call back, find everything out that you can about that employer and take it all with a pound of salt. Be ready for that because I, I did that with my current institution. And, you know, the, the thing that I found is they are a small employer. They do not have a whole lot of reputation out there as an employer. You know, I went and found out things like, okay, I mean, we kick ass on our students with board scores. You know, they, they do a great job with that. On the negative side, the big complaint that I found was on the institution poorly addressing DEI issues. And I went, okay. And I looked at when those complaints were. And I have seen that since then, you know, the institution has taken a hard line on this is something they are consciously working on. So I was ready for that. And I wasn't freaked out when I got there and everyone was going DEI all the way. It's like, oh, yeah, something happened and you have acknowledged that this is an issue. Cool. I'm down with this. And hey, by the way, you're asking me to implement a course quality rubric? Hey, do you know that Oscar is uh, being developed in, in a line with this other particular tool that has these 50 some odd points for, for, I don't remember who it is out of California, basically saying, here are the DEI things to include. But look at this whole list of things that we bring into that is already being actively worked on for inclusion with 
Oscar. Wouldn't that be great? So, you know, basically <laughs> keep your ears open at all times. Do not dismiss anything you hear because you never have an idea how it's going to play in. And, you know, that it it seems like it's common sense for any job, but the flexibility and variability across all instructional design positions, in my experience, makes it even more valuable. And I guess I'm going last. So the last bit of advice, if you are seeking jobs, is um, look at the job descriptions, not the titles necessarily. See what role, salary, et cetera, matches. And the title is just kind of a way to get you there. And um, view the interview process as really a back and forth. And we've said that, but like, think about what's priority to you. If flexibility, remote work, uh, you know, the ability to really not be seen as support person, really be seen as a partner is important to you, really kind of suss that out in the interview process, because otherwise you might end up in a situation that you're just going to be unhappy in because you're, if, why are you leaving your current job? Don't apply for a new job that might have those problems and, uh, you know, figure out, figure out how you can have your best impact on the world. Yeah. Okay. So pulled a question from the question hat. Um, I think it's relevant, a bigger question than, than we have time for. So we'll do our best. Do we need instructional designers? Yes. Yes. Or I'm going to say yes, maybe it because <laughs> it can look so different. So I think no matter what, you need someone who can design instruction that helps people do things, um, whether we call it instructional design or not. I guess it depends. That's a tough question, question hat. I think there I think that it's a job that we've we've all, as as we've described, it's difficult to describe. But I think it gets often wrapped up in the technology, and that isn't the main point. Like that's so. I think we do to the extent that we allow it to be beyond the technology that we use, um, because it's really I think about how do you express something, how do you translate something from an expert to a novice, and in a way that is interesting and engaging? And then how do you also provide a learning experience for that expert who's going to translate that information? At least that's that's what it's like in in, the, in a higher ed context. You, you. I, I think so. I mean, just like the sum reason is, is that um, understanding how and why people learn is its own field and its own science. And it's not really fair or human to just kind of expect people who are uh, very familiar with their topic in industry or higher education to just assume they're going to instinctively know that like just like they're touched with the magic question hat and all of a sudden all um, all knowledge of instructional design is imbued into them like they are a scroll with that machine in uh, Secret Invasion some spoilers if you've never seen Captain Marvel or Secret Invasion yet I think, you know, part of it for an instructional designer is part of your job is to be a professional novice. And mm -hmm. so that you are not the subject matter expert, but that you can be there listening to the expert and you can say, okay, can you explain this better? 
okay, you haven't explained this part yet. You know, can we, mm -hmm. can we make sure we get this flowing in a way that this makes sense? I mean, I, I know that this is some basis of knowledge that you're assuming your learners have. Can we either take some time out and ex explain it to ensure that they know this, or let's identify some prerequisite knowledge that they have to take, you know, another course beforehand to make sure that they know it so we don't waste time going back over this. And being that person who can analyze what your expert is saying and be able to tell them, let's dial it back a notch. Let's let's step back a little bit to make sure we've got this information and then move on to the next stuff. So, yes, my opinion is yes. Yeah, I think we need uh, <laughs> I'll I think we're going to get to a point. We're going to increasingly have to defend the idea that you still need this position. And by I mean that by for the administrators or managers who view this as just assemble content into a shell and uh, put this in an organized manner and make some assessments for it. Um, we're eventually going to get to a point, I think relatively soon, where a piece of software is going to be able to do that for you in a very, um, you know, relatively quick manner. Um, but as we've all talked about with like, you know, our ChatGPT discussions and other things like, the ability to assemble and organize information is only part of the job, but it's the part that gets the most, maybe it's the most visible. But the other parts of like, okay, now we have this organization, this inf information organized, what are we going to do with that? Why does it matter? Um, how do we make this interesting? How do we make sure it's accessible? How do we make sure that the instructor feels supported and and, and these types of things or that um there there isn't misinformation in here as well or we aren't doing things that because they're common practices um but are maybe common practices that aren't that are potentially damaging we aren't just reinforcing those because that's what the robot has picked up as the most common practice um so i think we need it uh still and i think we'll still continue to need that kind of role but I think it's going to increasingly be something we have to even more voraciously advocate for, unfortunately. You mean we can't just uh, throw, a, throw a bunch of prompts into ChatGPT and it will just spit out reliable, valuable uh, information? This surprises me. <laughs> I am I am as you can know, as you know, this is a video podcast, therefore you can all see my very surprised face. Um, but I I truly hope that uh that any administrators listening to this podcast uh do understand the nuance and human aspect of really understanding the science and cognition of learning and the assembling the content is a part of it but it is not the hardest or even the most time consuming part um and i think in our first episode or our prequel episode uh we kind of discussed what our families the lay people kind of think about what what we do. And I am hopeful that the people who oversee us and our budgets are much more um, in the know that they do not actually think that is what we do. Anyway, can we end our Secret Society podcast on a more positive note, maybe? Because we're supposed to be a positive Secret Society. 
I don't know many other secret societies because they're secret. So I don't know how they we end are, their meetings. So they're better at we this. They're a weirdly public secret yeah, society. Yeah, we're, we kind of suck at the secret do, part. So <laughs> do, the, do the Freemasons have a podcast? That's, that's really my question. Um, from the reading I've done, uh, every podcast is a Freemason podcast in some way. I mean, they control uh, the world, so... <laughs> I thought I thought that was the lizard people, or is that a different uh, conspiracy theory? They're interrelated. I mean, I'm sure there's some lizard Freemasons. I mean, how could there not be? <laughs> uh, it's just a question of anyway. whether they're better at keeping the lizard part of themselves or the Freemason part of themselves secret. Mm-hmm. Or, or both. both. Or is there a Venn diagram of people who know they are both lizards and Freemasons? Do you do you think? Freemasons who are members of the Illuminati wear forget and like wear the wrong robes to some of their meetings sometimes, and we're like, oh shoot, uh, I'm a third level Mason, but I'm a sixth level Illuminati member, and I went to the wrong meeting today. My I got the dry cleaning, and uh, it's just uh, sorry everybody. Make, make it reversible. This is embarrassing. Um, Reverse it. They, yeah, that's true. They should. If they're running the world, they should be able to get somebody to sew them a garment that they can just flip out. How do we know that? Where's our secret already? society robes, though? Hmm? Where's our secret <laughs> society robes? That's where I want to know. We're in a secret society. I want, I want like, super cool robes with the... I don't know. Well, I think that's, I think that's next, next on the docket. So we've, one, uh, as every secret society should, we've made a very public... Po uh, recording of everything that we think and, and talk about uh next step is uh robes to identify us Ooh, and membership public. cards i think that's what people yep, do right yep, membership cards yeah um then we need neon signs for our houses and then we'll be the perfect secret society um i think we can i think we can wrap it up uh okay. if we want yeah <laughs> anyway thank you for joining us for another episode of the secret society of instructional designers uh, I think Nick actually has a better outro, so hopefully he cuts out the part I said that and just tapes it over with his normal outro. Nope. <laughs> we're, that, we're keeping it. No! Hi, everybody. Questions or comments can be sent to secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. That's secretsocietyotid at gmail.com. <laughs>